0: What we're going to do right now, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in the book of Ephesians for uh, several months now, and we are just continuing to go through this book um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, taking a look at it. And uh, what I want to do first up is I'll pray, and then uh, we'll begin to, I'll set the book up a little bit for you guys just so you can understand where we're going. If you haven't been with us uh at all then this will be new information for you. you've you been with us uh it's sort of kind of rebuilding upon what we have already started building on and uh let me just say this as well if you guys don't have a bible you can raise your hand we have some ushers that would love to get you guys bibles and if you don't own one um they would be happy to just give that as a gift to you guys so that you can have a bible so raise your hands nice and high so they can see us. so um you can keep them raised while i'm praying that's that's not cheating so i'm gonna pray God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to be here, to submit our hearts to you. And God, what we want this morning is not just simple information uh, that we really don't even know what to do with. We don't know how to process or shuffle through the mass amounts of information that's already preexistent or that keeps bombarding us. But God, what we do want is we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We want to be new people that are part of this project of restoration, of healing, that you have launched the day Jesus rose from the grave. And that you brought us into the day that you called us to rise from our grave of death and sin to follow you. So God, help us right now, equip us right now, challenge us right now, let your word bring comfort to us in all the variety of ways that we need. And we give you this morning, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, I want to set this up real quick. Next slide is I'll show you guys a little bit of uh, kind of a brief, very maybe even kind of truncated, uh, maybe even overly simplistic view of this whole book. But I'll do it in two simple points. First is chapters one through three. As I would describe, is sort of these are the actions of a healing God. Paul talks about the actions of a healing God, and he describes these as God not abandoning us, but God coming to us. God. Uh, Forgiving us, God cleansing us as a community of people or as sinners that were once sinners, alienated from God, being brought near, being described as the way Paul uses as sons or as children, being brought near. The idea is becoming heirs. All of this is language that is linked to the concept of healing that this God is a healing God and He is healing those that were once out of sorts, out of sync, broken. Uh, from relationship with him. He's healing. So the second thing, that's all chapters one through three. Um, The second uh, grouping of chapters, which is four through six, you can describe this as the actions of a healing community. So God heals this community, uh, does a work within this community, sets them free, forgives them, washes them, shows mercy to them, uh, shows generosity to them. And then in turn, uh, this is noted uh, within chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul kind of uses the connecting word. He says, therefore. The idea is that in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, uh, Paul is linking what he's about to declare, describe, uh, to all of the former verses or chapters that he'd been basically unpacking for us. So in other words, therefore, because God is a healing God, because God has moved upon you, that God has initiated his journey towards you, kind of like the father uh, in the parable the prodigal son that came running to you, God initiated this, uh, that God is also now bringing forth or uh, making a brand new community that moves in the way of being healed, but then also then goes forth and brings healing. And there's at least three different layers in which you can think about the healing process, the healing that happens within the community, meaning uh, that community of people called the church um, are a bunch of really kind of former uh, broken people that are now being healed, which means that they will step on each other's toes. They will bring offense to one another. They actually may even become a Christian, having former offenses against other people that need to be worked through, sorted out, taken care of, forgiven, so on and so forth. But uh, it's not just that community in which healing is going to be taking place, but outside of that community. So think of your neighbor. But it's not just your neighbor, meaning someone that you may work with at Uh, the place of employment, or your actual neighbor, meaning they reside right next door to you, um, but someone is within your zone, your sphere of influence, that's your neighbor. But it doesn't stop there either, because it extends to even another layer, which we don't like to talk about in church, and those are the layer of enemies, people that we hate, people that we do not like, people that we may have even prejudices against, people that may have wounded us, hurt us, divorced us broke up with us, stole money from us, took our job, so on and so on and so on. This healing extends layer upon layer upon layer outward. So this is what we see that God is in the process of doing. Chapters 1 through 3, actions of a healing God. Chapters 4 through 6, actions of a healing community. So I'll say this. The healing power of new creation, come from God, is at work through Jesus, the head, forming a new humanity, the church, the body. Again, these are metaphors to describe that Jesus is not a literal head. He is a metaphorical head upon a, uh, a, a body, a, not a literal body. The church is not a literal body. You are not a heart. Um, some of you are not skin cells. Uh, we are a, a metaphorical body. And the imagery is that Christ is the one who gives uh, directives. He's the one that gives information. He's the one that gives guidance. All life, all all thought. All imagination, all healing initiates, originates from this thing called the head. Sends signal, sends information, downloads, uh, directives to the remainder of the body. And if the body's whole, meaning there are no uh, fractures within the spinal column, and assuming that the nervous system is functioning properly, meaning the body is properly linked to the head, then health, wholeness, healing, begin to go forth throughout the remainder of this body. That's the way it works in nature. That's what Paul is borrowing from this natural illustration and metaphor and saying this is the way the church functions. This is the way, not just functions, but flourishes. It's the way it becomes healthy and works and moves and brings health. So, forming a new humanity, the church body to be a community which brings healing to each other and to our broken world. And I already said, explain what that is. So, that's what I want to take a look at here this morning. I want to read the passages that we kind of left off on last week. We'll actually kind of uh, overlap with what we left off on last week, which was verse 7. We read that. We'll read from verse 7 to verse 10. Now, I realize this is only a handful of verses. It's kind of a short group of verses, three of them to be exact, I think. One, seven, eight, nine, 10, four. Something like that. I'm not very good with numbers. Uh, The point of the matter is, is that it's not that many passages. In fact, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been covering kind of larger passages of text, but this is kind of a smaller one. And the reason why I said this a couple weeks ago is because this is really dense information. And I think it demands us to kind of slow down a little bit, to think about it, to really ponder it, to consider it, it, and then to begin to move forward through it. So um, I'll read this. You guys can follow along. And here's what it says. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Verse 10, he says, and he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, what is Paul talking about here? And perhaps even another question, why would I even describe the church as a healing community? Paul doesn't necessarily describe the church as a healing community. Why would I choose uh, language to describe uh, this community in a way in which Paul doesn't necessarily come out? So reason why, take a look at the next slide. I'll explain why I'm choosing to describe it as a healing community. So think about it this way. Again, God moved upon this community of people that were once Formerly broken, sinners, alienated from God. We'll look at that more in just a second. Uh, and he healed them. He draw, drew them back to himself. And this process of drawing them back to himself by forgiving them, by giving them placement within relationship with himself, all of these are healing uh, actions and moves. And then Paul, then, chapter 4, verse 1, says, Therefore, again, I'll just read it to you. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, and, and had been called. So again, we looked at this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. But the idea of being called is not so much the concept of like God called you and denied you. This is the idea of vocation. That God called you and has given you, equipped you, called you to be a part of something. He's given you a vocation. And what Paul is saying, therefore, walk according to that vocation. That vocation which is consistent with healing. The healing God. That didn't alienate himself from you. That didn't marginalize you. That didn't say that you have to keep the you know eternal dunce hat on your head forever to stay in the corner, uh, completely, constantly, forever marginalized from me. But this is a God that says, "Come near me. I'll wash you. Don't be ashamed. Lift up your head. Don't keep your life wilted as if somehow sin has become this eternal mark upon you. God says you can be free from that. I'll wash you. I will." cleanse you, I will give you a new name, I will give you a new identity, come near me and be whole, the idea of wholeness is a word that's oftentimes used in the Old Testament to describe shalom, or it's a Hebrew word, shalom, or peace, and the idea is to be whole, be healed, be well, be made whole, so this is what we mean by this, is that God has actually taken this, and so what Paul then says is walk in a manner that's consistent with what you've been shown. Well, what have we been shown? We've been shown humility, gentleness, patience. God is certainly born with us in love. God has maintained unity. In other words, rather than shoving us into eternal divorce, God has says, I don't want to divorce you. I want to draw you near. This is the unifying God that says, come near me, be with me. And so Paul says, therefore, just as you've been shown all these things, therefore, show these externally. So think about it this way. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity, all of these are marked uh, healing actions. When people live these, when people embody these, these actually are activities or actions that lead to one's wholeness or healing. How do we know this? Because take a look at the opposites, all right? One of the best ways to sometimes identify something and the impact of something is to take it, turn it inside out, and look at its inversion. So think about it this way. The opposite of humility is arrogance. The opposite of gentleness would be someone who's extremely rough. The opposite of patience would be someone who's impatient. Opposite of bearing with one another in love. Actually can have two kind of opposite meanings in the Bible, which is hatred, but the other is fear. You're afraid, and sometimes they kind of go hand in hand. The opposite of unity is division. So think about these, embody these, or personify these. So think of a person, maybe yourself, if you are daring enough, Think of a person that embodies these, the second list. If you are a person who's arrogant, rough, impatient, full of hatred, fearful, uh, creating fear, and constantly divisive over the things that you say, even if it is constantly for what you would assume good things, you are always dividing people. You are always the one that at Thanksgiving dinner, you're bringing up topics about politics and religion just because you want to be the one that with all the information. You are divisive. You are the type of person that most people run from, meaning you are constantly bringing wounds. You guys with me? You guys agree with that? Anybody find these traits characteristic in themselves? We all do. Right? And honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we all do. These are things that oftentimes that are innate to our actions, and yet God was acting in accordance with a way that was innate to his actions, which was humility. He was gentle. He was patient. He forbear with us with love. He reached out to us to draw us near. So therefore, Paul says, just as you have been healed by God, so therefore be part of this new community of whole people, healed people, and then to begin to live out these actions outwardly to others. So that's why I say, Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, loving, uh, loving uh, in, in love, maintaining unity. All of these are healing actions. The opposite are arrogance, roughness, impatience, fear, hatred. Again, this list is not an exhaustive list. There are other lists that you can kind of draw from Paul's other corpus of writings, but this is enough to kind of get us going to think about this, that one list leads to healing. The other list actually leads to further brokenness and destruction. So this is why I say that the church is a healed community called to be a healing community. This is what Paul seems to be indicating. So the question naturally arises, then, how? Well, that's what I want to try to tackle today. So two things that we'll take a look at today are really the question, uh, first question is, uh, how is this, uh, or really, who is this community made of? So let's, this is really a question of identity. Who are these people? Who makes them up? The second question we'll take a look at is, how does this community flourish? The first of which is, let's tackle this. Who is this community made of? So again, like I said, this is actually a question of identity. Um, are you one of these? Does this apply to you? Are you part of that healing community? Is that is, is that something that's happened in your life? And so what we see is that Paul has given us some great topics to think about with regard to the first three chapters uh, describing who this community were uh, and was. And chapter 2, verse 1 is just one of the great summations of everything that Paul has kind of been talking about. In fact, it's one of the great summations of all of Paul's writings about who the church really is, where they came from, where their future lay. So listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, In you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. So we know that, first of all, whoever these people were, they were once dead. Now they are alive. He says, You were once dead in sins, uh, in which you walked according to and following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of error, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, So the point of the matter that I think Paul is going to describe, the idea of the prince of the power of the air, he's going to actually talk about that concept a little bit later uh, around chapter 6. A lot of us are kind of familiar with that chapter. It talks about spiritual warfare. And some of us might be wondering, like, how in the world does spiritual warfare play into this concept of being a healing community? Very much so. Because what Paul is going to say is that in this world right now, there's an unseed world that's right now. It's kind of like a parallel universe, if you want to think of it that way. Then if you like Star Trek geeks, think about that and savor that. It's like a parallel universe of spirit beings that interfere with and interrupt with this world. Think about it this way. They try to influence and vandalize God's good forces of creation. If you want to think of it another way? They are forces of anti-creation undoing what God wants to do, influencing us, causing us uh, to—our minds to think upon the way that we once used to live— and what Paul is going to say in chapter 6, he's like, I want to help you to withstand the forces of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against these unseen forces that are constantly trying to undo what God is trying to do. And so the point that he's going to make is that before you came to Christ, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, we just lived in this perennial state of being influenced, guided, directed by Not only the desires of our flesh, he's going to say. He says, uh, among whom you once lived according to the passions of your flesh, uh, carrying out the desires of your body and of your mind, you were by nature children of wrath. But he's going to say that you were also being constantly influenced by these forces, these unseen forces that are constantly trying to undo and undermine God's good forces of creation at work in this world. Paul says, that was once you, swept up, stuck, caught, bound, a slave to these things. But Paul says, but, as he goes on, one of the greatest phrases in the entire Bible, verse four, uh, says this: "But God." That—that's one of those imaginative phrases that says, "This is who you once were." But God is the pivot point. It basically says, "This is who you once were. This is what once defined you. This is once the way that you used to live, and you're stuck. You're bound. You're a slave to." But God has entered in. God has done something possible to the rest of us to even conceive of god has brought life to you who are once dead god has made a way where there seemed to be no way god has broken through with light where there was nothing but darkness this is what paul says this is who this identity of these people are and he says who is rich in mercy and i love this because paul wants to elaborate this is not just a deity like a zeus who has power, raw power to cast lightning bolts upon his enemies. But this is a God that is full of grace, full of gifts, full of love that comes to us in gentleness with love to draw us near. This is the God that we have. In other words, to put it another way, this is a God that made himself vulnerable for us who are constantly skeptics. Of opening up to anybody else. This is a God that says you can be vulnerable with me. You can lay your heart bare on the table with me. I won't crush you. I won't oppress you. I won't destroy you. I won't mock you. I won't shame you. I will actually take your shame. Your mockery. Your pain. Your anxieties. Your hurts. I will heal you. This is the God that we have. This is what Paul says. This is the identity of who this Community is, and it's from that that Paul says, "As you have been shown healing, now live out healing." So, someone can surmise from that statement that okay, no, so Christians are nice people. Is that, is that really what Christians are? They're nice people. The people are uh, that are living this life of being kind, of being nice, of helping other people. Uh, helping old ladies cross the street, uh, wanting to give food to homeless people. Uh, You see them, they always just have smiles on their faces, and they're being kind to one another. Is that really what a Christian is, just a nice person? Well, C.S. Lewis actually, again, as oftentimes he does, has some great input on this. He actually wrote a little essay that was called, Not Nice People, But New People. Um, And the idea that he was really trying to convey is that there are some people in this world, shockingly, that actually by nature are just extremely nice people. Have you ever met them? And they're not Christians. They don't necessarily love God. They're not people that you would look at and be like, I love Jesus. They're, they're just quiet, but they're just nice. They're people you go to and they want to bake you like zucchini bread or give you some food or just help you out. If you need a car to move, they're right there to loan you a car. If you need some cash, they're happy to help you out. They're just really, really, really nice people. So sometimes it's easy for us to think, of, well, maybe a Christian is a really, really nice person. That's not at all the case. I mean, listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say. I'll let him speak. Next slide. He says this. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all of, all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Just pause and think about that for a second. A lot, a lot of us would say we love Jesus. We follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, that's really what a Christian is. He's saying, I follow Jesus. But A lot of us, we like to follow an edited version of Jesus. We edit it. We're like, I like this part about what Jesus has to say. This other part absolutely embarrasses me. This part right here about what Jesus has to say or Jesus' followers or Jesus' leaders in the church, say apostles and pastors and teachers, we'll look more at that over the next couple weeks. People that have been given, granted authority by Jesus to carry on what he has to say. What they have to say, it's kind of a little bit of an embarrassment, so we don't follow that. But I follow all these other things. The golden rule love others, do unto others as you have them to do unto yourself. That's rad. I'll follow that. The other, these other things, not so much. Do you understand the inconsistency in that? If Jesus is just your life coach, you can do that. You can pick and choose. You can edit. You can take various elements of what he has to say and apply it to your life and think, I like that. That looks really good. That might get me some friends influence some people, but these other elements of Jesus are nothing more than embarrassment, and I will hide them and run from them and flee from them as much as I can. You can do that if Jesus is your life coach. If he's your Lord, you can't. You can't. What you're actually saying is that I like certain things about what Jesus, but there's a lot of other things I don't really like about Jesus, and so therefore I will conveniently edit out the parts that are frustrating to me in order to accommodate him into my life. (laughs) Anyways, I'm just going to keep going on. He says, thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, in a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because the first faint gleam of heaven has already inside you. It's beginning to break through. I love that picture. So why, as a community of healing people, if you're a Christian, why would we show kindness? Because kindness was shown to you. Why would we show generosity? Because generosity was shown to you. Why would we not marginalize people that we particularly don't like? And why would we welcome others? And why would we forgive enemies? And why would we try to go out of our way to uh, bring reconciliation? Because... That is precisely what God has done to you. Heaven has broken forth in your heart, and we are called as image bearers of God, to reflect God. One scholar theologian described reflecting God or imaging God uh, brilliantly. He kind of described it this way where that we are kind of like mirrors that are to be positioned in such a way whereby the light that comes from above gets then pushed out based upon how it's uh, positioned. So in other words, if it's dark over there, and I can take a mirror and shine the light in such a way that it begins to shine forth light over there to fill that corner of darkness with light. That's what he describes is the idea of being an image bearer of God, that it has to do with posture, and it has to do with the clarity of the mirror. But the problem is, for us as human beings, is that we are fractured mirrors. We're broken mirrors. We need healing first. We need to have our lives somehow mended and repaired, and that's what the gospel does. It repairs and mends and heals us. And the posturing comes through us submitting our will and our heart to God and saying, God, you showed grace, kindness, mercy, gentleness to me, love to me that I want to posture my life in such a way to where there's nothing but darkness over there. I want this light that you have shown me to shine and fill and flood that area of darkness there. That is what God is up to. that's what God calls you to. If you're a Christian, that is you. Not your pastor, not your Bible study leader, not somebody else who's within the church. That's what God has called you to be a part of, to move into, to walk with him. That's why Paul can say, I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So the next thing is we begin to take a look at this larger concept of, really, how does this community flourish? Because if in reality, Christians are not just simply nice people, but they're new people, new people with new desires, new longings, a new heart, we operate in a new way, live according to a new uh, concept that governs all things. In other words, we don't uh, set out to live with our minds influenced by our fleshy desires or live... With our minds influenced by demonic powers that are unseen, we live in a way in which we want our hearts and our minds to be renewed and influenced by the Spirit of God. And by doing that, posturing ourselves in such a way that that's how this world begins to be moved into a place where healing can then begin to happen, as God's image bearers begin to reflect that. So the question then comes next: Is how does this community then flourish? How does this community then flourish? Well, the short answer is that through gifts, God gives, gifts. In other words, we can't do this on our own, which basically means that you and I don't have the goods to do this because we're broken people. We are still kind of in our own little recovery modes of having been through a process of not only being broken, but then through the process of meeting Jesus and having been through that process of Jesus saying, stretch out your withered arm. And we stretched out our withered arm and it was made whole. We are all in those various, we would call that the drama of redemption taking place in each one of our individual lives, but then beginning to work within the collective body. But we don't have what it takes on our own to begin to continue to do this. So God gives us gifts, and these come in at least three specific ways. First of all, Jesus, the greatest gift. God so loved the world, verse that we oftentimes quote verbatim and oftentimes become so cliche. We just Meaning we just say it, we don't really feel the reality of it, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That The idea is that Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus came to rescue, to save, to transform. We see this through his life, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately, we'll point out in just a moment, his ascension uh, into heaven. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus is the gift, the greatest gift that we could have ever imagined. When we oftentimes think about gifts... We determine value of a gift and oftentimes attachment to a gift based upon the value of the gift, right? So if someone came to you and, you know, gave you uh, a gift to, say, hometown buffet and you like to eat healthy, you're like, thank you, um, maybe I'll re-gift this, you know? And, and the point of the matter is it's valueless to you. It means nothing to you. It doesn't even, might have been 50 bucks, you're like, ribeye, steak with nasty mashed potatoes and um, this, is, this does not sound appealing to me, so I'll just re-gift conveniently. But the point of the matter is, there's no value innately within that because to you, that's just a worthless gift. But if someone came to you and gave you, you know, a gift card that was a, at a restaurant you really liked and food that you really liked or a, for, uh, you know, a, a clothing store that you really liked, a particular clothing... You're going to be really stoked, and you're going to treasure that and value that and keep it close to you. You don't want to get lost. It's not one of those cards, you know, they want to stick in the middle of your, you know, dashboard, let it kind of fall behind somewhere fall out of the card, and get lost because you value that. And in the same way, Christ, a lot of times, many of us wrestle with really treasuring him is because we have not paused to really understood the value of who Jesus is. We might say it, we might pay homage through our lips, we might even sing songs uh, periodically, we may even be momentarily moved to even read the scripture too. But the point of the matter is, is do we, the question really kind of has to be asked, how much value do we attribute to Jesus is dependent upon how much do we really treasure him, how much do we see of what he has done for us, and do I see that, do I know that, do I recognize that, and I've been moved by that. So first of all, we see Jesus is a great gift. second thing is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go. When I go, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will then indwell within you. Think of it as like a living temple. Every temple had some form of a spirit in the ancient world or some form of a god or a goddess or a statue that kind of depicted some form of presence of this deity. Jesus says, you know, this is not about a temple where you're not going to go worship. There's no holy, sacred spot that you're going to go to at some point or some position on planet Earth. All of you will be holy because my presence will be given to you inside you. You will be holy because my presence will dwell within you. Again, another gift is described as the gift of the Holy Spirit. Finally, uh, there's a variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. Uh, These gifts, which we'll take a look at next week, uh, come in the form of gifts from God to the church. These come in the form of teaching and pastors and evangelists and uh, apostles, will unpack more of that next week, but the idea is these gifts are meant to equip the church for the works of ministry, but then also there are other forms of gifts that Paul talks about in the book of uh, Corinthians, and some of these gifts may be natural gifts, like hospitality, meaning some of you uh, by nature are just very hospitable, you by nature like baking cookies, you by nature want to find out who's going through a rough time, or very sick, or just had a baby, and you're like, I need to go make them a pie, By the way, I like pie, it's my birthday tomorrow, so if anybody wants to make me a pie, that is a shameless plug right there. But the point of the matter is, is that some of you like thrive on that, you love to give good gifts to people. Well, harnessed by the Holy Spirit, meaning you ask God, God, how can I use this gift for your pleasure, for your glory, for the building up of the saints, for blessing other people, that now becomes a gift of the Holy Spirit, to bring blessing, to bring Edifying, to bring, building up to all sorts of other people that I mentioned, I am very built up when I get pie. But the point of the matter is, these are a variety of gifts. And again, the question has to be asked is, do you know what yours are? Do you know where you thrive? Some of them are supernatural. Prophecy, healing. Again, by nature, they're supernatural, meaning you don't possess them. You don't just whip it out and be like, I got the gift of healing and heal someone. No, it's like the Lord moves and sometimes the Lord may lead you, move you to pray for someone. And in praying for someone, God may end up healing someone. It may be doing something miraculous or healing in those particular ways. Uh, We believe in that type of stuff. We believe. It might sound kind of weird or strange, but we believe that God works in those specific ways. These are gifts that God distributes and God gives. So how does God cause this community to flourish? So to answer that, we got to take a look at a couple things. One, verse 8, Paul begins to unpack some of this. Because his whole point on verse 7 is this premise that says God has... Uh, brought about this community of healing and wants them to flourish by giving them good gifts. Again, verse seven, says, but grace gifts were given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every subsequent gift that God gives to us is according to the measure, the ultimate fullness of the gift that came through Jesus. So think of it this way. There's the great gift of salvation and then are these subordinate gifts or lesser than in value gifts. These are not gifts of salvation you're gonna get saved. Uh, the Gift of Salvation comes through Jesus, but then there 's other gifts that come for the purpose of building up other people bringing healing and wholeness and Jesus does this, and he works through these gifts to bring wholeness into our lives i 'll give you another just a simple example of that that when we live as a Christian, for example, the assumption is is that if you 've received forgiveness from God and you are in a relationship with someone in which you're refusing to forgive them there is Woundedness there. There's brokenness there. You can't sit down at dinner table and actually have a meal with them because you don't want to stare them in the eye because there is a rift. There's something that's wounded or broken going on between the two of you. You have the ability, the power by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you to offer forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness for somebody that you've either offended or that has been offended you and you are able to release them. That brings healing. I'll give you a stark example of that. Uh, Several years ago, I do uh this uh class which we'll be doing another one in the fall called men's basic training one of the guys i was chatting with was telling me that uh that he i was talking a little bit about this particular topic right here and he had this idea in his mind he realized he came up to, to me ask, afterwards and he says hey you know there's a, there's a gal we were both christians we were both raised in our youth group i had sex with her i took away her virginity and i i, I left for school i never really talked with her again and so how does that make you feel I was like i feel crappy I feel like I, I, I wounded this girl. I hurt this girl. It was by my hands, by my actions, I wounded her. And I don't know what to do. I says, what do you think the Lord's leading you to do? He says, I, I think God wants me to call her and ask her to forgive me. I said, well, let me pray for you. It's a tough phone call. Go for it. Next week, he comes back, and he's like absolutely beaming. It's almost like the first glimmer of heaven begins to shine through his life. He's beaming. He shares with the whole group of guys. Guess what? Uh, I called this girl that I hadn't talked to in a couple of years. She picked up the phone, told her who I was. She was dead silent. And I says, I want to apologize to you for what I did, what I took from you. And I know I can never give it back. I'm sorry. He says, there's nothing but silence on the other end. For a long period of time, it felt. I said, what happened next? She said, she started crying. She says, you don't even know the prison I've been in. I forgive you. Healing came through that brother who was moved by the Spirit, who received cleansing from his defilement, from his shame, from his brokenness, to now then go forth to the one whom he committed sin against and asked her to forgive him. And then, therefore, healing then came through her into her life. You see how this works? Is this easy? No. It's so hard. It feels like death. It feels like carrying a cross. But this is, if we're going to be real with this gospel message. This is what this is calling us to. We've been healed to then go forth and bring healing. So, That was a heavy illustration, I know. Let's keep moving. Paul then goes on. He begins to talk about in verse 8. Sorry. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So again, Paul is talking about God wants a flourishing community, a community that brings forth healing. How does he do this? We need gifts. Where do these gifts come from? Paul borrows a verse from the Old Testament, uh, Psalm and uh, Psalm 68, verse 18. And he says, uh, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to all men. So Paul actually borrows this verse. In fact, he changes it just a tad bit, which I don't really have a whole lot of time to go into. But the point that Paul is going to make is that Jesus, is what he's describing here, is he has come as ascending Lord, risen Lord, but then giving gifts. And Paul uses his passage to basically um, underlie, uh, you know, underscore really this idea, this notion that God is very serious, about us being a healing community, and he's very serious, so serious, that what he's done, is equipped us with gifts to be able to embody this and to live this out. So this is, the particular passage in a lot of ways has um, been dissected in a lot of different ways throughout the history of the church, and I'll give you like, the, the two major ways in which it could be understood. So perhaps the first way is Paul is bringing about an allusion to a king. The king, obviously, that would have been within everybody's mind, because this is in Ephesus. This is a church that, or a region that would have been very familiar with the power of Caesar, the power of Rome. There's a major uh, outpost there in Ephesus. It was a major region or major zone that was annexed into Rome. And this would have been a place that would have been familiar with uh, when Caesar would go out and bring about a battle or bring about a victory. He would then come into that particular city, um, and there would be all sorts of people. Most of all, All of them, obviously, would have been people that were like, like claiming loyalty to Caesar. Like, hey, Caesar, we're here. We, we're, we think you're kind of cool. And, and so, but then behind Caesar, or at least one of Caesar's, Caesar's uh, military officials um, who have actually probably won the battle, there would have been this string or this host of uh, warriors uh, that were fighting against Rome and they were defeated. So they would have been chained and they would have been being drugged through the streets, paraded through the streets as a way of basically saying, uh, these are vanquished foes, And by the way, everything that they once owned now belongs to Rome because you guys are Rome's loyal citizens and we love you and you love us and you're loyal to us. We are now in relationship with you. So all the spoils that we have, we're going to gladly give to you. These are our gifts to our loyal citizens. Perhaps that's one image that Paul is depicting. Uh, Another image perhaps that Paul is depicting is more of a uh, a Torah version, but or maybe it's a fusion of these both. So the other one is kind of like a moses life figure. So because Paul uses this particular psalm, Psalm 68, obviously we have to assume that he did this purposefully. Psalm 68 was a psalm that was actually sung during a particular festival called the Feast of Pentecost. And if you're familiar with Jewish festivals, you know that uh, this came 50 days on the heels of what was called Passover, so Passover was a, an event that took place celebrating God, freeing the people of Israel from uh, Pharaoh, from Egypt, and then bringing them through the wilderness to this particular place called Sinai. At Sinai, this is kind of where the language, a lot of scholars have kind of identified that maybe this is what Paul is actually doing. He's merging together this thing because the way that Paul describes what Jesus does is that it's very similar to uh, the Exodus language within the Exodus narrative. So Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and then descended Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. What were the Ten Commandments? It was a gift from God to his people. One of the greatest of those gifts was the Sabbath. I've unpacked this before, but when the children of Israel lived in Egypt, they were under the law, if you would, of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's law was pretty simple. Make bricks. That's Pharaoh's law. Oh, and by the way, make more bricks. And make more bricks without straw. And make more bricks with straw. Make more bricks... More bricks, more bricks, because we need you to constantly being busied and working hard, filled with anxiety, because there's always another quota to meet, and always another tower to be built, because Pharaoh's work is never done. And by the way, there's never any time or occasion to rest. But Yahweh brings his people out and says, by the way, because of my God who's at rest, I give rest to my people. Receive my gift. Like Moses, Jesus ascended into heaven and descended through the Holy Spirit to impart, to give gifts to all of his loyal followers. So, finish with the last verse in verse 9. He says this. Paul kind of gives his own little um, interpretation of what he sees as happening in Psalm 68, um, In Hebrew, this was typically called Midrash. Paul's giving his own little rabbinic tradition, as interpretation as to how he sees this. And it's fascinating. He says this, and in a lot of ways, this is kind of a a confusing verse. So just follow along real quickly as you hear me read it. He says this, and you'll know why in a moment, why it sounds so confusing. Because there's a lot of descent and ascent language that's going on here. He says, he descended, referring to the Psalm 68. He descended. In saying he ascended, what does he mean? But that he also descended in the lower parts or the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So again, you see why it's a little bit confusing. A lot of uh, different interpretations have kind of landed throughout the church, throughout the history. So a lot of the question kind of comes back to them, which interpretation is right? Well, I'll give you the menu of the three most prominent ones. First one is that the ascension, or I should say descension, going down, ascension is going up. The descension is one of going into the grave, which would be indicative of the fact that Jesus is on earth and then he goes into the grave. So the descension is down into the grave, the second of which is hell and Hades. This was actually a common concept or belief in some early church documents, that it was believed that Jesus actually descended into hell. And oftentimes they would tie this into a passage in the book of uh, uh, Peter, where Peter talks something similar to this. Um, And then uh, the other third one, which I think is probably more accurate, probably tying in Psalm 139 Uh, Has to do perhaps with the idea of birth and earth, meaning that Jesus as God is in heaven in this other zone. Sometimes we think of heaven as being, you know, 50 billion light years out there, but. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I can't remember, I'm losing track of time. But we saw a video, and it kind of depicted this concept that heaven is not simply way, way, way out there. Heaven perhaps is kind of like, here's another like, geeky term, uh, maybe another parallel universe. that It's here. We just don't see it all the time. We're not always aware of it. There are moments when God appears and shows up, and these two zones seem to interface with each other and overlap with one another. And this perhaps seems to be the case, that Jesus was in heaven with his Father... And then descended into the lower parts of the earth, which may be a metaphor. It's probably a metaphor for the fact that Jesus came into this earth, suffered, died, rose again, and then ultimately ascended. There's that language, ascend, which 40 days after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, Jesus ascended into heaven, which is the metaphor language of saying, this is a king. Where do kings belong? On thrones. Where is Jesus reigning? In heaven. Why? Because his aim is to unite all the functions, the life, the shalom, the healing of heaven with this place that we call earth that's broken and wounded and fractured and hurting and trying to figure out ways to narcoticize our pain. And he's a God that says, I have come to bring about life and life abundantly. This is the God that we have. This is why Paul is saying that when he comes, he comes to bring gifts, to bring healing, to bring shalom, to bring wholeness, to help us. So in summary, what can we draw from this in terms of conclusions? One, I think in short, last slide, is that we've all been given gifts, every one of us. If you're a Christian, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, do you know that you've been given gifts? If you're here and you're not a Christian, stoked you're here, happy you're here, you've been given gifts. You just breathed right now as a gift. God gave you oxygen. He gave you a lung that processes oxygen. He gave you blood cells, red blood cells that carry that, lung, that oxygen to the vast portions of your body so that you can have feelings so that you can taste so that you can hear or actually tune out because you don't want to hear this guy yelling at you or you can begin to feel hunger or begin to think about various food that you want to play around with on your tongue and you are excited to get out all of that was a gift from your creator god who loves you but if you're a Christian, God has given you gifts. We talked about them earlier. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, do you know the value of those gifts? The second thing is that we've can all that we all been given gifts to promote healing. I'll read you a couple of passages that kind of emphasize this. Take a look again at chapter 4, verse 2. We'll read this very quickly. It says this, 4, verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. And the implication here is that... God has given us something so that we would continue to maintain something that he began, which is healing from our brokenness. That love seems to be that thing that promotes this. The final thing is uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Look at that real quickly. 4, verse 16. He says this, from whom the whole body joined, held together in every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what Paul's actually saying is that this, this body, this thing that we call the church, actually has built within it a self-reparative mechanism. What that means is that it will always be prone to breaking down. It will always be prone to having areas and seasons of offense. That means that if you're a Christian, there will be people and seasons in your life that will bring pain. People who you thought were to bring healing have actually brought you pain. But built into that body is a reparative mechanism to bring healing. It's called love. Forgiveness. Kindness. Gentleness. Maintaining the unity of the spirit. All of these things are part of that. So we've all been given gifts. Do you know what yours are? Do you know what God's given you? Maybe another question to think about it is how are you embodying that? How are you living that out? What are ways in which you are tangibly, practically using those gifts to promote healing uh, to the church, to your neighbor, to perhaps even more frighteningly your enemy? Finally, we can expect the community to be full of wounded people in various stages of being healed. You can expect that. One thing you can absolutely be certain on is that when you come into a church, this church especially, we're filled with broken people that are in various stages of being healed and put back together again, which means and implies we will offend each other. We will hurt each other. And don't somehow look at the pastor and be like, oh, the pastor's got it all together. He's no. I don't. I'm a broken person. I'm dysfunctional. I wound people, most often those that are closest to me. It's a perennial reality for me constantly having to deal with my own clumsiness, my own sinfulness, my own hardened and heart. But the reality is, is that all of us, that means when you come to church, when you gather together with saints, when you get together in your small group, when you're in a relationship with someone you will find people around you that will let you down. They will say things to you that maybe they may or not uh, intended to, but they'll hurt your feelings. They may actually omit you, even though they may or may not have actually been intending to do that, cause you to feel marginalized, cause you to feel alienated. Maybe in some cases, uh, unfortunately, maybe even feel judged. All of those things are realities within a community of formerly wounded people that are being healed. Remember, we are not good people. We are new people. I want to finish with a, another quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm done. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up. It's a great quote. Actually, there's two. I'm going to read them. So these guys are coming down. Give me some more time. So come on down. I'll read. It says this God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature, a Pegasus. Of course, Once it has got its wings, it will then soar over fences, which could have never, it could have never jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there are, there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow, when it cannot do so, and at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one can tell by looking at them that they are actually going to one day be wings. It may even give one an awkward appearance. Love that. He finishes with this thought. If... You want to get warm. You must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, and I might add humility, gentleness, and all of the other things that Paul listed, he says, you must get close to them or into them, the very thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, even if he could choose Hand these out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, how can he not but wither and die? This is where we find ourselves. Confronted with a God who's actually a good God, who loves us, who wants to bring healing to us, to transform us into a healing community? And God invites us, He calls us, and that call comes in the form of saying, "I'll come." The call comes in the form of Jesus saying, "Stretch out your withered hand, pick up your bed and walk. Open your eyes." And in that instant, someone can say, "I can't stretch up my hand." I can't pick up my bed. I'm crippled. I can't open my eyes. Even if I did, I'm blind. It's in that moment we find that God says, I will be your gift that brings life to you, and I will give you everything you need to flourish. That's where we're at. Do we trust this God? Do we treasure Christ? I want to invite you into that. We're going to sing. Partake of communion. Communion is a way of reminding ourselves of the fact that we've been invited to the table. Sinners, broken people, once those kind of on this trajectory of brokenness, ultimately to a place, like C.S. Lewis says, of being separated, getting in a says, path of brokenness, Jesus describes it as a place of hell, torment, destruction, brokenness. Set free, healed. So it's a way of reminding ourselves that we've been invited to the table even though we are broken and yet to, invite, to be invited to be made whole. That same invitation comes out to you. And at the same time, at that table, we begin to realize we are sitting amongst others who are broken, some of which you may or may not have been in odds with. And yet at that table, you are invited to extend the same kindness, grace, forgiveness, love, acceptance, which was shown to you to those whom you may or may not have been at odds with. So Paul means by partake of the table in a worthy fashion. Meaning make sure that your life, your mind, your heart are lined up with this God who has realigned your life with him. We'll sing. We'll have some people up in the front that would love to pray with you. So whatever circumstances you may or may not be going through in your life right now, I want to invite you to just go get prayer. If you've got issues that are just going on in your heart, that are just keeping your life broken, God wants to meet you through people. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Why don't we all stand? And um, there's some rugs in the front. If you guys just want to get on your face before God, I just want to invite you to sing to this great God. God, thank you that we have this opportunity of just uh, letting hearts rise with praise and honor to you. You're a good God that rescues and saves people that are broken so that we can be a healing community. So empower us, enable us to be so.